a quick summary uh, to catch you up to speed where we're up to in Hebrews. Uh, we've been through uh, close to the first five chapters of Hebrews. And, um, and basically the over- overview of Hebrews is that it's a book written to a bunch of people who'd been tempted to give up and drift away from the truth and the gospel. The writer spends many words encouraging them not to give up. And with good reason, as he unloads bullet after bullet, providing a justification for Jesus' existence and deity and painting with careful and precise brushstrokes a grand, grand picture of who Jesus is in all his splendour as he images his Father. When we were first going through it, we heard that God is the God who chose to reveal himself to people. He chooses to speak to us through the Bible, his very word to us. And as God, he gets to define reality, not us. When we think our definition of reality is the bomb, he intersects with the truth, taking us and bringing us back to true reality, to true life. The author of Hebrews is writing to help us to cast our attention to both the now and into the heavenly eternal future in God's eternal and unshakable kingdom. The writer seems to know that being a Christian comes with various degrees of marginalisation and suffering and he writes for them with truth that will help them recognise their responsibility not only to believe in Jesus but to go on with him. Not just to celebrate a single salvation moment, but to embark and continue on this journey of being saved day by day by day. The book was written to urban Christians, not unlike ourselves. So we know that uh, there's actually hope that what has been written in this book called Hebrews is actually applicable to us right now. And some of the, uh, setting some of the context, setting the scene really helps us to see that. Their culture and society was similar in that there were many brands and sects of religions. Sects, just to get that straight. Sects of religions in such a way that the Christians who followed Jesus were marginalised and came under suffering if they claimed that indeed, indeed Jesus was the only true and worthy God of worship. It's, it's going to... Uh, you have conversations with people... Um, I was just talking to a young fellow who was out at uni this week or recently who was talking to an atheist. You have a conversation with an atheist and say that Jesus is the only God, it's going to probably spark some pretty lively discussion, isn't it? You have a chat with a postmodernist who'd like to think that all religions are the same. I remember having a chat with um, my sister-in-law's father. We are all camping out at this place one time and uh, we are all, all having this conversation Sorry, we were having this conversation and, uh, and we're getting to the point that he's very spiritual, he's deeply spiritual and, uh, and is on a journey of spiritual discovery. And, uh, and in the end, he basically said, well, we're all aiming for the same thing. And hopefully as we unpack this today, uh, we actually realise that that's not altogether true. Okay? While the name may be the same, the person is very, very different. Uh, <clears throat> So we hook in today. What I'd like to uh, talk about today is, uh, is the way that this writer pastorally, very pastorally speaks to his people, writes to his people. And I guess I wanted to come to you today uh, with these particular areas where we end up neglecting our faith. And the reason I want to come to you is not to rebuke you and to slap you on the wrist, uh, but instead to encourage you. Because ultimately that's the the point of this book. The point of this book is to encourage you and spur you on to keep going in your faith day by day when it can easily be uh, shaken and become drifty. So uh, I'll, I'll ask you this question. First up, when was the last time that you sat and just thought and meditated upon Jesus? Consider that for a moment. When was the last time you just stopped 
You had the Bible open and you were just reading about Jesus. You saw him as a person and you really started to see who he was, what he was like, and you just meditated upon that for a moment. Here's the second thing. Have you ever heard of the saying, once saved, always saved? If you're a Christian and uh, maybe you've grown up in the church, then you may have heard of that uh, quite regularly. Well, it's actually a deep, deep biblical truth that speaks about the security in salvation. So when God saves a person, God makes a seal called the Holy Spirit. He, He seals that salvation in a person until the end. And he actually helps you to persevere and keep going right to the very end. And so for someone who is saved, who's truly saved, you can really rest in that. You know that no matter what happens, no matter what I go through, I'm going to be saved all the way to the end. Uh, and it's in this truth that those who are saved can truly rest. However, we actually all know that it's really easy to drift, don't we? We know that when, uh, when we believe in Jesus and when we live our lives day by day in our world, we know, very noisy over there, we know that uh, it, it can be really easy to drift and get sidetracked and start to walk away from this very faith that, that has uh, helped to shape us. And so I'd like to go through four things that Hebrew talks about, of ways that we can actually neglect our salvation, ways that we can actually neglect this great gift that's been given to us. But first, I'd like to uh, just get us thinking, why is it that this salvation is so precious? What makes salvation, what makes the fact that Jesus came and died in your place and my place for our sin when he was perfect and rose again so that we might have eternal life? What makes that so precious? I wonder if you've thought about that because unless you know how precious and how valuable this salvation is, you're not going to really be worth, it's not going to be worth fighting for. You're not going to be thinking, man, this is something I want to hold on to. And not only that, but I want to grow and mature in it. So I hope you have thought about it before. I hope you begin to think, why is it that gaining Christ is something so valuable and something worth fighting for and persevering right through until the end? Why is it that gaining eternal life, we think that, we can tend to think that life here on the earth, the life that we live is like, yes, this is, this is sweet life. What I'm doing right now, I'm just loving it. I'm just so satisfied. But yet, sometimes we actually miss the, the fuller life that God would have in store for every person who puts their trust in him. So this salvation, why is it worth fighting for? And possibly, why do we neglect it? Why do we end up neglecting it? So here's neglect number one. Neglect number one. Some people that this writer was, uh, was speaking to, writing to, neglected the great salvation by becoming less attentive to Christian instruction and drifting away. They ended up drifting away from their belief that Jesus was the only true God. Think about it this way. Think about a child who gets neglected. The child could be living in the parent's home but being neglected. They might soil themselves and never get their nappy changed. They scream and they cry and they're never attended to, leaving them to fend for themselves. They become malnourished and have sickness and infection because they've been starved of the necessary nutrition from the food that they need. It would be wrong to treat a baby this way. and I'm sure we'd sit here and agree. We would never neglect a baby that way. Baby is something precious. This is a human life. 
Your salvation is something that is active in you day by day. And this is, uh, it, this is something that is, it's like a new baby. This is something that's life for you. And yet it often gets neglected like this baby that I've just been speaking about. You end up neglecting your salvation. You end up neglecting working on your salvation and working it out. What does it mean to be saved day by day, bit by bit? And it ends up being malnourished. You end up being spiritually sick. You end up being spiritually unsatisfied. You end up becoming like this screaming, soiled baby because, it end, because you neglect your salvation. It doesn't grow and develop the way it's meant to. Well, the writer to the Hebrews actually wants people to understand who Jesus is. And this is where I'll start. As one way that instead of neglecting our salvation and neglecting the, uh, the Christian teaching that we so often hear, uh, the, the writer to the Hebrews wants us to understand who Jesus is. One of Satan's key strategies within God's church is corrupting and distorting an understanding of who Jesus really is, what he came to do and what he is about to do. Religious pluralism would suggest that we just focus on the stuff that's the same about all these religions, like I was mentioning before. Imagine I was having a conversation with someone and they said they knew this guy called Bob. He came from Dalby and was a teacher in Toowoomba. And you said, oh yeah, Bob. I know Bob. Yeah, that guy from Dalby is a teacher in Toowoomba. And you continue having a conversation. There's many similarities about each of the stories uh, with this guy called Bob. But it's not until you delve deeper that you actually start to see some differences. We organise a catch-up with Bob and two separate Bobs turn up. And we finally realise we don't have the same Bob at all. And it can end up being the same with Jesus, right? We start talking about all these different religions and they're like, yeah, yeah, we just focus on the things that are the same about all the religions and everything will be sweet. And it's not actually the similarities that are important, it's actually the differences. And this is where he wants people to see. This is truly who Jesus is. I asked the question at the start, do you ever think and meditate and pause to stop and think about who Jesus is? And we don't get that just by public opinion. We don't get it from our own opinion. We actually need to open up the Bible and find out. God, reveal to us. Who is this guy called Jesus? So the big question, when you think about Jesus or hear about Jesus, how does what you think or hear match up to what God shows you in the Bible? Well, if you've got your Bibles there, open up to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And we're going to be flicking around all over the place today. So get your flicking finger ready on your phone or iPad or whatever. Get your Bible open. Hebrews chapter 1. This is where the whole thing uh, opens up for these people uh, that this writer is speaking to. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He, this is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the power, sorry, by the word of his power. You think about radiance for a moment. Radiance in its a definition in the Oxford Dictionary, it says this, it's light or heat as emitted or reflected by something. The radiance of the sunrise increased ever more as the sun crept over the horizon. It's great joy or love, apparent in someone's expression or bearing. The radiance of the bride's smile. I'll never forget, if you're married, you get to enjoy this. The, never forget when my wife walked down the aisle and this radiant smile, you could not wipe that smile off her face. It was radiant. It was It was glowing as she walked down with, uh, with her dad. And 
And it's, it's something that's never, it's something that I've never forgotten. That's the sort of radiance that Jesus shines uh, when he comes to the earth. It's a glowing quality of the skin, especially as indicative of good health or youth. Restore your skin's natural radiance. Don't hear that too many times in ads, do you? Uh, we were out the other night and uh, I took my girls up to Picnic Point. There was a full moon uh, in, in uh, I think it was Thursday night. And I wanted to take them to Picnic Point so they could see the radiance of this moon because this moon just radiated light. And the crazy thing is that that's just a reflection of the sun, which is in, it's absolutely incredible. But this moon would radiate so much light. It was, it was shining brighter than, uh, than any of the lampposts that were going at the time. Um, often it can feel like you're sitting in daylight, or it can almost feel like you're sitting in daylight with this moon radiating the light that comes off it. Or consider the sun, its brilliance pervades every opening. Its radiance is inescapable when exposed to it. And so it is with Jesus. His coming, his living, his dying and rising again was meant to illuminate the dreadful disease of our sin and the glorious nature of his love. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus, the very radiance of the glory of God. Think about the interactions he had with people. There was nothing left hidden, was there? When he spoke to that guy about his money that Diff shared about before, nothing was left hidden. The intentions of his heart were revealed. What was deep, deep down, what he thought he could cover up. The other person I think of is the, uh, the woman at the well. Nothing was left hidden. What she thought was just going to be a nice conversation about getting some water ended up being something that cracked her wide open. The radiance of Jesus Christ and the glory of God that came in and infected and, and, and got into every crack and crevice of somebody's life. That's what we're meant to see Jesus as. He's not just some guy who walked around. He's not even just some prophet who came to the earth for a, for a little while. No, he was the very radiance of the glory of God. Other part in Hebrews chapter 1 talks about Jesus as the final revelation of God. It says, in these last days, something to this effect, in these last days, God spoke to us like this, which was through the prophets. Uh, and previous to that, there was only snippets, little bits and pieces about God that would come about uh, through the Old Testament. But God then says that Jesus comes as the final revelation of who God is. You want to understand who God is? You look at Jesus. You want to see the, final, the fullness of who God is? You look at Jesus. It's exactly what it's saying here. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God. Exact. Like you get a stamp and you stamp down on that piece of paper, you've got an exact imprint of whatever's on that stamp, right? This is God saying, this is God's divine stamp. You want to know me? Here it is. Boom. Jesus in person. This is who I am. Come and know me. There were prophets in the Old Testament before Christ came to the earth who were revealing God in bits and pieces. But Jesus came to the earth as the final revelation of God so that we could see him most clearly. God has spoken in bits and pieces up until Jesus, but in these last days... From now on until the end of time, God has given us the last and final word concerning himself. Jesus. There's no more full and more final expression of God than Jesus. Nothing further. No preacher can extend on who Jesus is. We have the challenging work of trying to actually help people to understand who Jesus is, but nothing, no preacher, no person can add to who Jesus is. What he is is final. It's absolute. 
And this is a, this is a difficult thing sometimes that we, hear, that we hear God saying. This is how it is and that's it. Think about personal relationships. If you heard my uh, sermon uh, mid last year on Hebrews, uh, this is one of the examples that I gave. There is no intimacy without accepting the other person's finalities. Consider marriage. The other person contradicts us. They cross our will. They tell us things we don't want to hear. You thought everything is negotiable when you get married. You got this sweet bride, sweet husband. You get married you think, sweet, man, everything's just going to be nice until they start cutting across you. They put the toilet paper the wrong way around. They, uh, they don't do the washing up the way you like to do the washing up. They don't keep the garden the way you like to keep the garden. They have finalities about themselves that suddenly cut across your will. You want intimacy with a person and a person has a will and at some point you'll have to accept their finalities, the things about them that just drive you to insanity or else it's the end of the relationship. There's no need to adapt and adjust. Imagine a husband and wife. The husband became unsatisfied with his wife's finality, so he ordered a microchip to be installed so that she happily and joyfully ran around doing the housework, cooking meals and serving her husband. Every night he would come home to a delighted wife who was ready to do whatever job he had asked of her, but ultimately to have an intimacy in the relationship was impossible because you can't have intimacy with an appliance. You can't have intimacy with a robot that's programmed and channeled to do what you want it to do. There's no intimacy in that. So consider now your relationship with God. Perhaps you say, I think I believe in God, but I believe in a loving God and I can't accept that God is a judgmental God. There's a lot of things in the Bible which I can't believe, but there are a lot, sorry, which I can believe, but there's lots of things that I just can't believe and I don't really want to agree with it. Well, the question is, you end up taking God and putting a microchip in him. Saying, God, I want you to be like this. Anything outside of that? Mm, No, I'm not going to be happy. I'm out of this relationship if that's the case. God says, no, I'm coming with finality. I'm revealing myself in Jesus with finality. This is it. This is how it is. Do you have a real God who can contradict you? Is that the God you know? Who can cross your will? Or is it just an appliance that just does what you tell it to? How will you have a God that offends your modern sensibilities? It cannot unless you are willing to submit to the finalities about God and the things he says which cross over your will. And when you don't like it, you have to adjust, otherwise there's not intimate personal relationship. Unless you're willing to accept the hard edges about what God says and what God's will is. These are difficult things to accept, but if that is all God said about himself, and he decided, to insp- he decided to inspire this author to show us some glorious truths about himself, which will help us to continue believing and trusting God in his absoluteness and finality, and even when it crosses our will or makes us appear foolish before other people. So there it is. We neglect our salvation, we walk away from teaching, and we ended up making up these false Jesuses. We end up listening to people who depict this false Jesus. It's not an accurate picture of who Jesus really is. And so we're meant to focus. We're meant to take care that we actually know the real Jesus. And that means opening up our Bibles. It means uh, listening to quality teaching about understanding who Jesus really is. So it starts with Jesus and later on it will end with Jesus. I'll talk about that in a moment. Neglect number two. 
Some had ceased regularly meeting together. Some had ceased regularly meeting together. It's, uh, it's a scary thing when I hear people say that, uh, that I'm the church and wherever I go I can be the church. And there's some truth to that, but unfortunately what it ends up meaning is that uh, people take their salvation, make it completely individual and uh, go around and, uh, and just expect that they're going to survive pretty well on their own. That's a scary thing because what happens to these people who neglect their salvation and don't end up continuing to meet with people is that they become isolated. They begin to think that it's up to me to work out how I need to work out my faith. It's up to me to work out how I deal with my sin when it's actually true that God brings you into a family, a large family. And that regularly meeting together, regularly being in contact with each other is hugely important. We're not meant to be these isolated individuals here to work out our life on our own. We're meant to be in relationship with one another. If you're not regularly meeting together, it means that church has become a hotel for you. You turn up, you pay your way in, you enjoy the view, and you're out. <laughs> you ever thought about that? And that's, that, that's far from what God designed church to be. In fact, God designed church to be people, not just a building, not just an event you turn up to. No, he designed church to be people. He designed that you would actually come and be investing in other people, contributing to other people, and that other people would be contributing to you. So you neglect your salvation when you cease meeting together. When you come once in a while just to maybe make yourself feel better, maybe make your um, spiritual anxiety go away for a little while, no, you're meant to come and meet regularly. Work out, how can I invest? Now, there's all sorts of things that impinge on that, but when I follow Jesus and when God calls people to himself, that's part of what he calls you to. And so you learn that your priorities start to change. My priorities are no more uh, just keeping on filling up my life with busyness. My priorities are, well, God, you are the centre of everything which I revolve around. My priority becomes I'm not my own isolated individual anymore. I actually need people. I need to interact with people. I need to uh, invest in people and be, uh, be giving to other people. Neglect number three. Some had ceased to exhort each other daily, which meant the people around them had hardened their hearts by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10.24 says this, Let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together. There you go, he repeats it again. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's a huge warning, isn't it? There's a responsibility on every person who finds out the truth and knows the truth about God and the truth about us and the truth about sin. And if they go and neglect that, they go and walk away from that, there's serious consequences. And there's an element of fear. Whoa, a fearful expectation of judgment because I know the truth, but I'm walking away from it. I know the truth about sin, but I'm going to keep on sinning anyway, even though I know the truth. There's a, there's a hard word in there. And it's meant to be an encouraging word. It's a hard word. It's to actually build in us a bit of, whoa, I need to steer clear of that. When I warn my daughters about not going on the road, 
I want to make it clear. Don't go there. Don't play on the road. It's not going to be good for you. This is the same. Don't go there. Don't know the truth. Then walk away and keep doing whatever you do. The truth is meant to be slowly but surely transforming you, changing your affections, changing what you love so that your first and foremost love is Jesus. Hebrews 3, it says it again. This is a repetitive theme. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day. Exhort one another every day. Do you feel that responsibility for people around you in the church that you would be exhorting one another? Do you feel a responsibility for people within the community of people around you to be exhorting one another? The city is a uh, primary way and it's, it's slowly but surely getting taking traction in the project. But the city is a sure way that we can just be sharing with one another day by day. It doesn't have to be on a phone conversation. We don't have the liberty of all living in a uh, commune together. Okay? Uh, but we do have the liberty of uh, technology, which means that we can be connected day by day. Do you have the heart of... of uh, what this writer is saying of I want to exhort my brothers and sisters day by day. Because you know, when you, when you become an isolated individual and when you stop exhorting other people, when you stop thinking of others and working out how you can contribute to their lives, you end up neglecting your salvation. It becomes a huge danger. Maybe, maybe there's an element where you need encouragement and that's absolutely right. It's absolutely right that you would invite. Maybe you could share something. I'm just going through a tough patch at the moment. I don't know how to get my head up. I'm sinking. I'm drowning in water here. I need to get my head out and get a breath. Someone pray for me. Someone help me, please. So there's that element. But then do you actually make an effort to go, man, someone's drowning over there. I need to encourage them. I need to exhort them to keep going, not to give up. And then on the deceptiveness of sin... Because people's hearts get hardened when we start taking this isolated view of ourselves. I'm isolated, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, sweet as. I'm sweet then, I've got eternal life, I'm all good. When we start taking that, people around us start to fall away. They start to get hardened by sin. Someone's playing the drum in my back pocket or something. (laughs) All right. Uh, They start to get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here's what Hebrews 4 says. For the word of God is living and active. This word that we're reading right now. This word, God's word, the Bible, is living and active. It's not a textbook. It's not a, uh, a, nice, it's not a nice fictional story. It's living. It's active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What God wants you to see here is that he's glorious and that he's given us this word to help to shape us and to reveal to us, all right, well, here's your sin. Don't be deceived by it. And so we neglect our salvation when, A, people don't uh, exhort us daily, But we also neglect our salvation and we get deceived by sin when we don't actually open up the Bible. When we don't uh, live in community together and share the Bible with one another. So that we allow the Bible to cut across deep into our souls and cut across our sin, helping us to come to full life. 
helping us to look more and more like Jesus. So our lack of exhortation ends up helping others to be deceived by sin. So you get this, we, we, we're focused. We've got direction, we've got drive to be encouraging one another. Neglect number four. Some had become stagnant and stopped growing in their faith. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 to 14. If you've got your Bibles again, open it up. I'd love for you to read along with us. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 says this. About this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. And the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Now, everyone's got to start as a child, right? Jesus says, and one guy was weirded out by this, but Jesus says you must be born again when you come and follow Jesus. And this guy was like, what? Doesn't mean you climb back into your mother's womb and you get born again? Like, that was a literal question that some guy asked Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. But spiritually, you get born again. You actually start a whole brand new life. You restart life in the most full life that could ever be. So you restart life, you get born again, you're a child, and you've got to start on child stuff. Just like a child starts on its mother's milk, so a new Christian, a born again new Christian, needs to start on milk, needs to start on the really basic foundational things. But we don't stay as children, right? That would be weird. Case of Benjamin Button. What was that? I've never actually seen the movie, but it looked weird to me. So the guy starts old and gets younger, is that right? Like, that's weird. But we don't start young and stay young. We're actually starting young. We're meant to start as babies and we're meant to mature. Like, naturally, that happens. That's part of God's order of the universe is that babies grow and mature, okay? And it's exactly the same with our faith. Our faith is meant to grow and mature. It's not meant to just stay stagnant and sweet. All right, I know the basic stuff. I'm just going to be happy with that. You know what? You can read this Bible until the end of time and it will still get deeper and deeper. That's the nature of who God is. The nature of God is that he is eternal and so you will never, never, never get to the depths of who God is. means we get the rest of our lives to come and know God more and more and more. And we get the rest of our lives to be shaped by God and to be shaped by his word. So the Bible uses the word maturity, right? And it makes sense. People grow from being a baby to a toddler to a child to a teen to an adult and they physically mature. But what about their spiritual maturity? What do you feed your spiritual hunger that exists within you? Because everyone has a spiritual hunger. One of the core beliefs of the Bible and so the core beliefs of the project is that everybody is a worshipper. We all worship. We were created worshipping. And we end up worshipping anything and everything other than God. So when it first began, people worshipped God. They walked in the garden. Adam and Eve walked in the garden. But after that, sin enters in because they started worshipping someone or something else other than God. Satan came in and they ended up appreciating Satan's word more than they appreciate God's word. Then Eve uh, manipulates God's word and starts to believe in herself more than she actually believes in what God's word says. And so you get this inverted worship that turns in on yourself. And from then on, people start creating things. They start creating statues. They start creating little people that they can worship and, uh, and animals that they can worship. And they literally make sacrifices to these animals and gods. 
And it has never changed today because the core thing about every human is that we worship. We give our time, we give our effort, we give our affections, we give our money to whatever we worship. And so, <clears throat> the spiritual hunger that exists in every one of you is being fed by something. For some, this means pursuing the leadership of the church and asking for opportunities to see your knowledge and understanding grow and your ability to distinguish between good and evil grow. For others of you sitting here today, this is the very milk you need. The very thing, the very thing that you need right now, you might be a brand new Christian, is the really foundational things about God and who God is. And our, my, my encouragement to you today is go seeking it. Come and talk to us. We would love to point you in the right direction of getting the milk, the very milk, the sustenance you need to be able to grow and to mature. For those who've been a Christian, for a follower of Jesus for a long time, then you ought to be working out, how can I be maturing and growing in my faith? What can I read? What can I watch? What can I listen to? How can I encourage others to get around me and do the same thing? Let's grow and mature together. Or it might mean finding a worthwhile resource and working through it with a Christian brother or sister. It almost always means repenting of idolatry. Because when we're not maturing, or we are retreating toward other gods, toward giving our time, money, efforts and affections towards someone or something other than God. This is where Hebrews is speaking directly. Are you maturing or are you retreating as a follower of Jesus? Are you maturing and growing, learning, changing, being changed by God? Or are you retreating? No, I just want to stay where I am. This is, this is so easy to... Uh, it's so easy to do and it's so easy to be able to sort of cover up that you're looking mature on the outside or maybe you're looking like you're going great guns on the outside but inside your soul is just dying and it's squashing and it's, getting, it, it's, it's not going anywhere. It's not maturing at all. And so the encouragement here is that uh, Jesus doesn't stay as this glorious, magnificent God who comes to the earth. But then it goes in Hebrews and it talks about Jesus being a high priest. This is where I want to finish today. Qualifications of a high priest. The high priest in the Old Testament was uh, someone who God installed, someone who God put in place to act as a representative of the people who would go into the temple and who would offer sacrifices for the people on behalf of the people. And so there were some qualifications for a high priest One was that he would be one with the people. Qualification of a high priest is that he would be one with the people. He wouldn't sit in his ivory tower and study up on all the theology and uh, and never actually interact with the people. No, he would actually get down with the people and he'd be talking with them, sharing life with them and doing life together. The second is that he would show compassion. And the third is that a high priest was always appointed by God. So let me just run through really quickly uh, some of the ways that Jesus fulfills all of these things about a high priest and why he is the great high priest. Okay? And, uh, and hopefully it actually ends up being an invitation for you that Jesus isn't this, this God who's far off. He's not just this God who's perfect and we can't attain to who he is. No, no, he's the God who came so that we would actually be able to be in a relationship. Remember back to Hebrews 1 and 2. I've already alluded to it today. The curtain was open on Christ. All things placed in subjection to him under his feet, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering he endured. 
him for whom and by whom all things exist, through whom God created the world. God created through Jesus the very world that we see around us. Amazing. The radiance of the glory of God so that we can't escape it. The perfect imprint of God's nature so that we can know God. He upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. Just pause and think about that. The words of Christ's power uphold the whole universe. This building would crumble unless Jesus was holding it together by the word of his power. If that blows your mind, let it blow your mind and let it keep sinking in. This is the God who we're talking about here. He makes purification for sins and he sits at the right hand of God, alive, well and ruling and reigning perfectly. But why is it such a big deal that Jesus is the great high priest? It's being able to trust his work and not wonder whether he was just some phony that a bunch of dudes happened to write about a few thousand years ago. was that he fulfilled the criteria, not just fulfilled them, but perfectly fulfilled them. So let's have a look. Because throughout history, a priest or pastor has often been lifted up as the great high priest expected to be perfect without sin and being able to mediate between the people and God. Ends up, the people end up lifting these people higher than Jesus or equal to Jesus and expecting them to be perfect in every way. And when they fall, man, you, just, you lose your faith. You walk away because you had all your hopes set on this one pastor or this one preacher or this one great high priest. And that's exactly what these people ended up doing. Uh, and so, Jesus, so the writer's saying, Jesus, pin your hope on Jesus. Have all your expectation on Jesus because he delivers. He delivers perfectly. It was like this in the Old Testament and God's design until Jesus. But after Jesus, it was only meant to be Jesus. He was the only one who was meant to be the great high priest. Jesus became one with the people. Jesus didn't hold on to his right to be equal with God, but instead came to earth in a human body, fully experiencing the human experience. Fully. Except without sin. There are two myths surrounding how we can relate to Jesus, given that he is fully human yet without sin. Myth number one is this. Because Jesus did not sin, it means that he was not tempted. Ever thought about that before? Well, how can he be fully human? He didn't sin, which means that he wasn't actually tempted. Well, the truth is that he was tempted. It means that he has overcome the temptation perfectly. Think about people you look up to or people you honour and respect. They are people who have been through the testing of trials and temptations and come through strengthened in their, resolved, in their resolve in life and work. So the perfection of Jesus in the way that he did not sin even when tempted actually gives us hope that we can continue on even when we're tempted. When we're tempted to give up and throw away our faith, when we're tempted to, uh, to give up exhorting other people, encouraging other people, when we're tempted to uh, not meet together regularly, when we're tempted to look at another imperfect image of Jesus, when we're tempted to do that, yeah, no, we, we come back and we actually realise Jesus made it through temptation and he did it perfectly. And in that way, he becomes one with us. He doesn't stay far off and, and, uh, and not be tempted by anything. He doesn't live in a monastery where they try to uh, expel any area of temptation. No, he actually comes into the world, lives the very life that, uh, that we live and is tempted in every way. Myth number two, because Jesus is perfect, we'll never reach his standard, so we might as well give up trying. Ever felt like that before? It's like, oh man, God's standard is perfect. I just can't attain to it. 
Well, that's the truth. You'll never be able to attain to it. And there's freedom in that. When you're on this earth, this side of eternity, you'll never be able to reach his standard of perfection and holiness because our heart is still diseased with sin. But Jesus perfectly living meant that he could make perfect sacrifice for our sin so that we should enter into eternal life where we'll one day, through Jesus, help become perfected. He is the great high priest who lasts forever and so does his work in us. When Jesus starts working you, he's going to complete it. He's not going to give up on you, no matter how, you, how much you feel like giving up on Jesus. He's not going to give up. He will remain faithful because he finished the work. He didn't give up when he went to the cross, did he? Watching the Passion uh, over Easter, Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson movie, and uh, it's obviously not perfect, but it helps just to get, get you thinking and, and pointing you to the Bible. And uh, as I was looking at it, man, the, the amount of times... I would have looked and just gone far out. I so would have given up right there. When he's getting lashed and whipped however many hundred times, when his flesh is literally ripping off his bones, when his blood is pouring out, man, at what point I would have given up. But the hope is that Jesus didn't give up. He went through. He went through right to the death. And it was for us. It was for us. He's the most compassionate of all high priests. He knows your pain and he helps you through it and he wants you to know you need to get through it and you can get through it. He was appointed by God. This is it. Verse 4 to 6. The high priests were not voted in. They did not solicit their way to power. They were precisely appointed by God. At any, at, at any rate, the Bible records disasters that befall those who took it upon themselves to perform high priestly duties. Duties, as in the cases of Korah, the ground split apart and swallowed him up. He tried to be a high priest by soliciting his way to the power and the ground literally opened up and swallowed him. Imagine that. Uh, Saul, he missed what God initially had planned and Uzziah was another guy. He tried to be a priest but it ended terribly. So Christ, more perfectly than every other priest, did not solicit his way to being the great high priest but was appointed by God at the very right time. He's the son of God. He's not just a God. He's not just a statue. He's not just uh, some other God that we include on our shelf of gods. No, he's the son of God. And so we better listen. He's not just a good man who roamed on the earth for a few years. The universe was created through him. His death means the forgiveness of all sins through all time for those who willingly put their trust in his work to deal with their sin. He's a priest forever. All the other high priests had their time and died. Jesus is the great high priest forever. And this is the hope, people. When we're falling away, when we're drifting, when we're neglecting our salvation, our hope is that Jesus is a high priest right now. And he's acting on our behalf right now so that we wouldn't give up, so that we'd persevere. This means for us that he's going to last and his work in, in slaying Satan's sin and death at the cross is going to last forever. When his work of salvation is started in us, we can have confidence that it will continue as we continue to repent, approaching his throne of grace bodily. So here it is, the final invitation. So the four neglects. You can neglect your salvation by not paying close attention to what you hear and by ending up being deceived by a uh, false uh, 
representation of who Jesus is. You can neglect your salvation by giving up meeting together. You can neglect your salvation by not paying close attention and exhorting each other daily by being an individual. You neglect your salvation in doing that. You neglect your salvation by not maturing and growing and taking opportunities to grow. But Jesus gives us the great invitation. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says this. It says right at the end of the book of Hebrews. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now this comes after Hebrews 11, which is where they basically list all the people who'd been faithful. And they, they, they hadn't even seen Jesus yet. They hadn't experienced the salvation that we experience today. But they, they believed and they put their trust in God and they were faithful until the end. So this cloud of witnesses to say, we were able to be faithful because God is faithful. So you also ought to be faithful. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so easily. Let's run with endurance. Do you get the language here? Let's do this together. This is a race to be done together. It's not a race to be done by individuals. Let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. And let's do that by looking to Jesus. Do you know him today? Do you have a clear understanding of who Jesus is? Look to Jesus. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the man who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and is actually seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Be encouraged today, people. Our God is a God who's come close and he invites you to come close to him so that you too would be able to endure, so that you too would not grow weary and faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Which is pretty good, isn't it? We don't have to shed our blood for the sin that we struggle against. Christ actually shed his blood so that we wouldn't have to. He endured it. So take care. Take care of your salvation. Struggle and resist sin by looking to Jesus. I'll finish with Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. So Lord God, thank you for, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, your word in this book called Hebrews, which has come to us this morning. And I pray, God, that this would be an encouragement that where people have been neglecting their faith, that they have been neglecting their salvation in various ways, God, that uh, they would take the invitation up. For some, God, there's people here who don't know you, Jesus, and don't have a relationship with you. And God, today I pray that they would take the invitation up. Come 
as a great high priest who loves you and has laid down his life for you. Come, come and know Jesus. And God, for those who are saved, for those who are following you, I pray that they would come. Pray that we would encourage one another day by day. We take every opportunity to be praying with one another, to be exhorting each other with scripture, that there'd be opportunities for us to mature and grow in our faith and understanding and knowledge of who you are so that we don't just sit in the milk and uh, enjoy milk and the simple truths, God, but that we would be going into the depths of who you are and depths of uh, life that we have never experienced before. So God, thank you that you open up a way for us to do that in Jesus Christ. We love you. We rejoice in this salvation that you've made possible for us. Amen.